Let's Be Frank is a podcast centered on interpreting the life of Benjamin Franklin and the times that shaped his thoughts and soul. Some content may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Greetings and salutations, dear listener. Welcome to another installment of Let's Be Frank, an auditory almanac for the curious mind, with me, your revolutionary friend and host, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. For purposes of good order, this podcast is composed of several primary sources associated with Ben Franklin's life, knit together with original writing to collect it all into one narrative on a cohesive theme. Today's episode is the second installment in our series, Chasing Independence, that distills the heady writing of the Enlightenment and presents it in quick 15-minute philosophy lessons to not only enhance the understanding of one of our most aspirational founding documents, but how best to relate to government in your own time. Now, our first installment featured Jean-Jacques Rousseau and focused on the theorem of the social contract and consent of the governed. Today, we're going to expand on these ideas and begin to explore how we categorize the law from the law of nature that finds mention in the Declaration of Independence, to the civil law, and finally, to the law of nations. If you haven't explored part one of Chasing Independence, dear listener, I highly recommend you do so, so that we may form a foundation and build from there. Or don't. I'm not about to tell you what to do with your time. Now, for the setting... The year is 1776. When we last left the story, the Lee Resolution had been introduced on the floor of Congress, a historic achievement brought to fruition by the labors of the Fifth Virginia Convention in Williamsburg, which we discussed last episode. A motion was put forward that a committee be formed to draft a Continental Declaration of Independence should the vote move in that direction, The motion carried, and a committee of five was appointed to set to work upon writing a declaration. The committee was composed of two New England men, Mrs. John Adams and Roger Sherman, a New Yorker, Robert Livingston, a Virginian, Mr. Thomas Jefferson, and your favorite man of Pennsylvania, myself. Recognizing that time was a commodity in scant supply, and that many had other obligations outside of the committee, it was decided early on that primary authorship should fall into the hands of one individual, with the remainder of the committee serving to be the document's editors. That duty would fall into the hands of the young Thomas Jefferson, quiet, contemplative, and significantly younger than any of the rest of us upon the committee. You might wonder why so great a trust should fall onto the shoulders of a representative who was, at that time, so continentally unproven as Mr. Jefferson. Mr. John Adams will provide the answer to it years later when he said, 
You inquired why so young a man as Jefferson was placed at the head of the committee for preparing a declaration of independence. I answer, Mr. Jefferson came into Congress in June of 1775 and brought with him a reputation for literature, science, and a happy talent at composition. Writings of his were handed about remarkable for the peculiar felicity of expression. Though a silent member in Congress, he was so prompt, frank, explicit, and decisive upon committees, not even Samuel Adams was more so, that he soon seized upon my heart, and upon this occasion I gave him my vote and did all in my power to procure the vote of others. I think he had one more vote than any other, and that placed him at the head of the committee. I had the next highest number, and that placed me the second. The committee met, discussed the subject, and then appointed Mr. Jefferson and me to make the draft, I suppose because we were the two highest on the list. The subcommittee met. Jefferson proposed to me to make the draft. I said, I will not. You shall do it. Oh, no. Why will you not? You ought to do it. I will not. Why? Reasons enough. What can be your reasons? Reasons first. You are a Virginian, and Virginia ought to appear at the head of the business. Reasons second. I am obnoxious, suspected, and unpopular. You are very much otherwise. Reason third, you can write ten times better than I can. Well, said Jefferson, if you are decided, I will do as well as I can. Jefferson would later remark upon the process, to the benefit of all of us, with fewer words. Unanimously pressed on myself alone to undertake the draft, I consented. I drew it but before I reported it to the committee, I communicated it separately to Dr. Franklin and Mr. Adams, requesting their corrections. I then wrote a fair copy, reported it to the committee, and from then, unaltered to Congress. Jefferson would bring us his draft of the Declaration, and together we would begin the process of polishing America's national promise to posterity. The story, for now, is to be continued. The hope of acquiring lasting fame is, with many authors, a most powerful motive to writing. Some, though few, have succeeded, and others, though perhaps fewer, may succeed hereafter, and be as well known to posterity by their works as the ancients are to us. We philomaths, as ambitious of fame as any other writers whatever, after all our painful watchings and laborious calculations, have the constant mortifications to see our works thrown by at the end of the year, and treat it as mere waste paper. Our only consolation is that short-lived as they are, they outlive those of most of our contemporaries. Words, my friends, are powerful things. When they strike true, they remain our brush with immortality and go on to become the best instructors for the present. Which brings us to the next philosopher in our series, Chasing Independence, a name history may have forgotten, but whose legacy still shapes policy today. Our philosopher for Chasing Independence, Part 2, is Immer de Vittel and the Law of Nations. Now, I'm a great fan of Vittel, dear listener, 
Uh, I will in fact present a copy of his work to the Library Company of Philadelphia in December of 1775, and I will remark that it came to us in good season, when the circumstances of a rising state made it necessary to frequently consult the law of nations. Vittel's work has been continually in the hands of the members of Congress now sitting. Immer de Vittel was born in 1714 in Cuvée, Switzerland, and schooled in theology, law at the University of Basel. He would serve as a diplomat representative of the King of Prussia to the Swiss Confederation. Uh, the Swiss Confederation would be one of the governments carefully studied as the United States endeavored to determine what shape its union would take, and these experiences would eventually lead Vittel to publish his most famous work, The Law of Nations, in 1758. Dear listener, the extraordinary feat accomplished by Vittel is that within his original thought, his writings, his concepts. He also composes and constitutes a collection of the work of authors who came before him. In reading Vittel, one explores not only his thoughts, but the thoughts of Christian Wolff, Hugo Grotius, Justinian, and Cicero. Eh, perhaps, dear listener, I find a particular partiality to this concept of collecting an assortment of sentiments and wisdoms of the past, and peddling it all in one succinct presentation for an engaged audience. I don't know why, I just find a, a particular virtue in that. It sort of justifies our almanac, don't you think, dear listener? So when we begin with Vettel, let's first examine what he says of the Emperor Justinian. Now, it was in Justinian's famed code of laws, the Corpus Juris Civilis, that the sentiment, all are by nature, free and equal, was codified, the same sentiment that will be boldly declared in our declaration. Vittel's unique stance on international law begins at the root of all law, according to Justinian, which is the natural law. Jus naturale est quod natura omnia animalia docuit. The natural law is what nature teaches to all the animals. The civil law, that emperor adds, is that which each nation has established for herself, and which belongs to each state or civil society. And that law, which natural reason has established among all mankind, and which is equally observed by all people, is called the law of nations as being a law which all nations follows. The law of nations, says he, is common to the whole human race. The exigencies and necessities of mankind have induced all nations to lay down and adopt certain rules of right. For wars have arisen and produced captivity and servitude, slavery, which are contrary to the law of nature, since, by the law of nature, all men were born originally free. Now, dear listener, what's fascinating about this is that Justinian is saying this in 600 AD. He's writing that the institution of slavery, of involuntary servitude, is a direct and errant contradiction of the law of nature. Can we not see in this formula how mankind has reconciled with these various institutions that go against our most fundamental laws and rights? And yet even now in my time, perhaps even now in your time, we are still finding these means, these measures, whereby man's liberties may be removed. Now Vittel continues, 
And so beginning from natural law, Vitell speaks on how mankind forms societies one with the other, and he lays out three purposes of government that are as follows. The end or object of civil society is to procure for the citizens whatever they stand in need of, for the necessities, the conveniences, the accommodation of life, and in general, whatever constitutes happiness, with the peaceful possession of property, a method for obtaining justice, with security, and finally, a mutual defense against all external violence. Three reasons for civil society, three obligations a government owes a people, the providing for common necessities, the promotion of the general welfare, and the protection against external violence and internal strife. Hence, the entire body of a nation and each individual citizen are bound by a double obligation, the one immediately proceeding from nature and the other resulting from reciprocal engagements. Nature lays an obligation upon each man to labor after his own perfection, and in so doing he labors after that of civil society, which could not fail to be very flourishing were it composed of none but good citizens. In sum, a person's first obligation is to perfect themselves, and then having done so, to move a step further and perfect their community. But the individual finding in a well-regulated society the most powerful suckers to enable him to fulfill the task which nature imposes upon him in relation to himself for becoming better and consequently more happy. He is doubtless obliged to contribute all in his power to render that society more perfect. Finally, several sovereign and independent states may unite themselves together by a perpetual confederacy without ceasing to be, each individually, a perfect state. They will together constitute a federal republic. Their joint deliberations will not impair the sovereign of each member, though they may be, in certain respects, put some restraint on the exercise of it in virtue of voluntary engagements. A person does not cease to be free and independent when he is obliged to fulfill engagements which he has voluntarily contracted. Such were formerly the cities of Greece, such are at present the seven united provinces of the Netherlands, and such are the members of the Helvetic body. After laying down what the states may do in forming the law of nations, Vettel lays out what the role of a citizenry is within that society. Now, Vettel says, It is essential to every civil society, civitati, that each member have resigned a part of his right to the body of society, and that there exists in it an authority capable of commanding all the members, of giving them laws, and of compelling those who should refuse to obey. Nothing of this kind can be conceived or supposed to subsist between nations. It is true that as there does not exist in mankind a disposition voluntarily to observe towards each other the rules of the law of nature, they have had recourse to political association as the only adequate remedy against the depravity of the majority, the only means of securing the condition of the good and repressing the wicked, and the law of nature itself approves of this establishment. This is sufficiently proved by experience. We have instances of persons who, having grown up to manhood among the bears of the forest, 
enjoyed not the use of speech or of reason, but were like the brute beast, possessed only of sensitive faculties. We see, moreover, that nature has refused to bestow on men the same strength and natural weapons of defense with which she has furnished other animals. Having, in lieu of those advantages, endowed mankind with the faculties of speech and reason, or at least a capability of acquiring them by an intercourse with their fellow creatures. Hence, it is deduced the establishment of natural society among men. The general law of that society is that each individual should do for the others everything which their necessities require, and which can perform, without neglecting the duty that he owes to himself, a law which all men must observe in order to live in a manner consonant to their nature, and comfortable to the views of their common creator. It's easy to conceive what exalted felicity the world would enjoy were all men willing to observe the rule that we just laid down. On the contrary, if each man wholly and immediately directs all his thoughts to his own interest, if he does nothing for the sake of other men, the whole human race, together, will be immersed in the deepest wretchedness. Now let us, therefore, endeavor to promote the general happiness of mankind, all mankind, in return, will endeavor to promote ours, and thus we shall establish our felicity on the most solid foundations. The law of nations is the law of sovereigns. It is principally for them and for their ministers that it ought to be written. All mankind are indeed interested in it, and in a free country the study of its maxims is a proper employment for every citizen. Like Rousseau, Vattel would never live to see an independent America. However, his writings on international law, perhaps more than any other philosopher of his time, would be essential in shaping how the states interrelated to one another, not only with the Declaration of Independence, but with the Articles of Confederation and, eventually, the Constitution of the United States. Now, what lesson can we derive from Vattel in the Law of Nations? Like Rousseau's social contract, we enter into society to create something better, collectively, that we cannot create alone. But in this contract, whether it is within our families, within our community, or in a league of nations, the sovereignty of the individual, the sovereignty of the self, the sovereignty of the state, remains paramount. The best safeguard of liberty is to fix your attention to becoming the guardian of the liberties of those in front of you, with the understanding that they will duly become the guardian of yours. Now consider how we might apply Vattel's notion of national sovereignty and natural law into our own individual relationships. Picture us remaining the master of our own wants, our needs, our wishes, and our interests as we enter into contracts with one another in maintaining our independence, in not abandoning ourselves, in first perfecting ourselves, we may then look towards perfecting other relationship, and in that, create more perfect unions in our own lives. Now that's all for today's installment. Would that we had more hours in the day, but as always... We have nothing but time between us. As we close, I hope I may again offer this solicitation. 
We here at Let's Be Frank are always looking for opportunities to travel. Franklin visited two continents and countless states in his lifetime, and here, in 2023, he wants to visit you. If you wish for a live presentation with the good doctor at your theater, your school, your event, simply write to the email inquiries at bfranklinlive.com, and my associates will make good to set up an appointment post-haste. Resources and images from this week's episode can be found in the journal at www.bfranklinlive.com. If you like the show, subscribe and stay up to date with all the latest gossip and news, and do me the kindness of leaving a review. You can follow us on Instagram at bfranklinlive, and, dear listener, spread the word. Tell your family, tell your neighbors, tell your horse, I don't care. Let's make our intellectual junto grow. And now, dear listeners, our time together must come to an end. Fare thee well. And always remember, when you're good to others, you are best to yourself. Until we meet again, I remain your humble and obedient servant, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. Stay curious, my friends. <laughs>